in five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Danielle. Oh, and this is Daniel. <laughs> and this is Carla. We are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. So there's this thing that my brother sent me this picture. There's the picture. It's yeah. These ladies, it says, vegan activists separate hens from roosters so the hens aren't raped. Whoa. Someone commented, so they are cock blocking. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That is good. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's what I thought. We doing? <laughs> Mom found more of our stuff. Your stuff. No, 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 no. You're in here too. Okay. Well, what are you doing? Well, with this it? is uh, a short story about me being a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> How, who Don't you give us some me, preface? Look. Why don't you preface what I we're doing? Really... Oh, we're, at a, we're doing a podcast. <laughs> hey, everyone that's not here and can't see anything. Oh, I'm holding up pieces of paper. It's a visual medium. I'm holding up ripped out notebook pages, so I don't... It's from 1995. So you were a child. Third grade. When you wrote it. Okay. (laughs) I'm glad we established that. (laughs) It could have been an adult story. Children's books are very stupid, and I like them still. You would be the person to call them stupid. They're great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm... At one point, I was going to write a children's book, but it was just going to come out real sarcastic. (laughs) Might sell some copies. Yeah. Love that. (laughs) There's a short, scary story. This is for social studies, third grade. So, social studies in third grade? Yeah, so stupid. I don't know what's going on. In sixth grade, we did coloring. So, I was like, fuck. Like, that helps you learn. Here, I'm talking about we're related to Abraham Lincoln, but that's not true. We are related to uh, fifth and sixth great-grandmothers helped deliver Abraham Lincoln. Let's do that. We celebrate Thanksgiving with mini M-E-M-Y chicken. Mini chicken? <laughs> it's turkey! Chickens and things. Well, pick one and read it. Okay. What are we doing? Oh, I had one Oh, where I talk about... She has places to be. Oh, no, I do? just like, we're just sitting here with no direction and you're just flipping papers. Okay. This is good. Okay. September 14th. Oh, it's close to your birthday. 1995. I get scared when I forget my homework and when I don't get things out of my backpack and when I forget things in the classroom and when I have too much homework. <laughs> and then the teacher, who I don't know who. Is this a journal <gasps> entry? How do you know? SR. Is this oh. a journal entry or is this for school? School. Okay. The nun. Oh. She recently died. The one that you guys were sitting on here. Oh. Yeah. Dancing and pissing on her grave. Oh, no. She was mean. That nun. I'm sorry. She, she was nice. mean. And, okay. She wrote, these fears will go away after you get all settled in. No. No, they no, don't. they don't. They never go away. We still have nightmares about forgetting stuff. And I had anxiety as a third grader and didn't even know what it was. Yeah. Was like, that is anxiety. They don't make it. They don't make it any better when they like scold you for forgetting stuff. Oh yeah, like the time I got a mark, it was at OLG. A mark is a negative thing. Yes, a mark, and it was because I asked to go get a folder that I thought we were going to need for the class. Didn't even fucking need it. Got a mark. Anyone who didn't, anyone who got a mark that semester, or whatever, didn't get to eat ice cream as you watched all the other kids in the class eat ice cream. Guess who was like the one fucker who got a mark? <laughs> Me. And so I'm sitting with these two asshole boys, one name, Fuck one, and they were like eating it like, mm, this is so good. And I was like, you motherfuckers. Like, 
because I asked to go get a folder. That's so it's not so good. mean. Like teachers, do they do that nowadays? No. It ever occur to you to go? I need to make sure I don't forget things. No, no. I can't. No, I can't do. It. Actually, I think the next semester I didn't have a mark, and they did because they're boys and they're dumb. Fifth grader for sale. Hurry in for a great deal on a perfect angel. Her name is Carla. She is the most wonderful girl in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you can get her for a great price. Only a thousand million billion a hundred a billion dollars <laughs> only sold to the following millionaires <laughs> this is terrible rock stars movie stars and kenny chesney <laughs> it's problematic it's all problematic well, why are we doing the assignment then i don't know i don't know if this was an assignment this looks like extracurricular activities on your part how how much has the price dropped? No, there's a there's writing on the bottom. Of You're it. right. You got an A. I remember doing that. It was a project. Sell yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just sat down and was like, "How much would I sell myself for?" <laughs> so a teacher came up with this. I'm like eighty percent. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. They wrote great. I got job. an A plus. It's a great job, Carla. <laughs> yeah, she was like cool in a classic red ink. Yeah, I'm out there. I'm you can still make a purchase. <laughs> I thought it was you trying to sell her. I, that would be something I would have done. I, I know. That, that is something you would have done. That's why I assumed it. 1-800-BUY-ME. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making it up. She, but it was an assignment. That sounds like something you find on like the dark web. Buyme.com. You wrote that too. <laughs> uh, why were they please, making us do that? Please contact. If you're not interested in me, please look at Melanie and Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the child you've always dreamed of. This was a fucking assignment. I know. You can, you can. Praise me with gifts and adorn my beautiful face all day. I'm athletic, cute, funny, and smart. <laughs> <laughs> Still true, bitches. And then mine are like, I'm afraid. No, it's not. <laughs> I, my assignments are, I'm wonderful and amazing. And then mine are, I'm afraid of when I leave my homework at school. <laughs> and that's why I have to take psych meds now. <laughs> <laughs> I do, this has nothing to do with nothing I don't care mom found this shit I'm so amazing and perfect <laughs> I'm really scared when I forget my homework <laughs> everyone is identifying with that right now I belong to a dysfunctional family of four there's also Reggie the family dog he acts like who, a person this? Carla <laughs> okay. oh my god it helps me to know who wrote yeah this what. is Carla uh, I guess you could say I have a family of five because he sits at the couch, eats, and watches TV with us. Sometimes we fight, but we love each other anyways. It's very sweet. That is sweet. Oh, you went into all the history of like, this is your autobiography. What, you're 06? So you were an adult. The only thing that changes is the dog. The dog. <laughs> the only thing that is She was an adult? Oh, no. I was an adult. Sorry. No, how old was she? she how old? 2006. 14. I was, yeah. Well, some places you're an adult. You wrote like mom's background, dad's background, my background. And you weren't very insulting either. Basically, okay, I home. was nice to people. Yeah. Let's just say that I don't have a normal family. <laughs> <laughs> True words have not been spoken. Family togetherness takes a different meaning with us. When we are together, we either are watching sports on the TV or doing some other weird activity. <laughs> we don't eat dinner together or anything like that, but we do spend plenty of time together. <laughs> well, there you go. We don't eat dinner together because we fucking hate each other. But. <laughs> <laughs> I have had, okay, honestly, you're like fifth and, or what is that, like seventh grade? My stuff from the earlier years is way better. Oh, yeah. 
When I was little, I had a big imagination. I was afraid of the boogeyman that lived in my laundry room and made noises all the time. Also known as the dryer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that an elf? He's like, it's by the window. He's going. (laughs) You guys never shared a room, did you? No. I always had the better room. Bigger bed. Yeah. Yeah, you did. I'm a small bed person. I always had a small bed. Small bed person. We'll just say it's because you liked it like that, not yeah. because, like, you I had think a in here. <laughs> I like this paper. It sounds good. Yeah, it is. It's a long, too. Look at all these pages. For reference, there's a lot of pages. <laughs> <laughs> when I get older, I want to be successful. Done. <laughs> I want to Check. have a family and live well. I want to be a good Catholic that lives with <laughs> the Bible and respects other people. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a friendly neighbor and a loyal spouse. I'm not a friendly neighbor. I don't talk to any of my neighbors. Uh, spouse. And no one will have you. So <laughs> I want to live, leave this world with no regrets and no worries. Someday, I want to go to heaven. <laughs> Take me in, bitches. <laughs> the world's about to end anyway, so... Um, I guarantee that was a bullet point that we had to touch on. I'll put in a good word for you when I get there. Okay, thanks. (laughs) I guarantee you had to put. The bullet point was mention how you're Mm -hmm. going to live in Mm -hmm. God's name in the future. Yeah, and if you didn't, you would lose five points probably. Five points, ten points, an entrance into heaven. Yes, (laughs) you would get 86 from the list. But you put in there, one day I dream of traveling the world and visiting foreign places. Yeah! (laughs) <laughs> and you did that. I did that. Yeah. 17 countries and counting going to Peru in March. That You're assuming that the world will be back to normal by next March. That is correct. You know what they have in Peru, though? Peruvian flute bands. Yep. Okay. Peru? What are you going to do in Peru? Um, I'm going to see Machu Picchu and hug, have a llama in each arm and watch the sun come up <laughs> over the mountain. I know someone who was assaulted in Peru. Well, I'll be Other careful. Other that, it was a great country. <laughs> no, no, I can think. I of will be reasons. in a huge group. I will be fine. We've been going. Honestly, it does get really interesting when you go to travel.gov, I think, and like it'll tell you all the places that like Americans shouldn't travel, and then like it even will go into like areas of the country, like stay away from this border, because yeah. blah blah blah. Because our criminal contacts have let us know it's real bad right there. Right it's now, it's real bad for everybody. <laughs> okay. Bye. Don't you know? Don't you know? Okay. Well, you guys, so let's just go over. I made some goals for myself, <laughs> and I definitely have reached them. You so vision boarded it. I vision boarded that my autobiography in 2006. This is actually pretty it. well written, and most of I think you got an A on it, too. I am a good writer Yeah. <laughs> I think you saw some of my poems before. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you're like, here, let me chop this. Well, in. no, well, it's the bolt, thing like- is, it's like I would do my own poetry, and then my friends would be like, we don't, can you help me? And so I would use yours and put their names on it. Yep. Because it's like forever. You can recycle stuff like that. I it was- said, this is deep, man. What did I, I got an email like two weeks ago from turnitin.com. They were changing their like <laughs> policies. Or I was like, what the hell? What the who? hell? To turn it to who? Is it 2010? What? what? Okay. Speaking of anxiety, though, I always had major anxiety that I committed plagiarism. But I wrote the whole thing myself. (laughs) Like, in your brain? Yeah. just like... I wrote it, and I was scared. That's a perfectly normal thing. You're right. I think I had that, too, because they're like... Because Turnitin.com became a thing when I was in high school, and Mm -hmm. you're just like, wait a minute, what? So, yeah. Copying or plagiarizing... 
they'll cut off your hands if it's not a death sentence entirely. I know. They told you that you would get kicked out of school if you were caught plagiarizing. I guess a private school, they can kick you out and say, go slum it with them fucking public school kids. I'd much rather. Public school is the way now. Now it's the way. It is the way. The word in the way. Amen. Yep. Good Catholic girl. I just want to be a good Catholic and a good neighbor. A good neighbor, that's it. I'm going to stand outside on my porch. (laughs) I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good neighbor. This, I went back to our third episode ever and braced myself for the unimaginable. Look, if we can go back and read an essay from 2006 and not be embarrassed, then I'm okay with it. Actually, it it was pretty good. I was more concerned about audio quality because we hadn't switched yet to this shit, Mm -hmm. expensive stuff. But... Um, if I went back and like pulled it and re-uploaded it, I would make it louder. So like, you know, you don't have to turn the volume all the way up to, for it to sound good. But that it really wasn't that bad cool. for first episodes because some people pull their first episodes because it's so bad. But I was I wasn't embarrassed or ashamed, and my responses in my head are the same ones I said in the episode. Because you go, <laughs> I gotta go drain the lizard, and you're like, what's in it? And you go. Piss and I go vinegar, <laughs> piss and vinegar, vinegar, <laughs> and in my head as I answered it, Full House. There was an episode where everyone had an internal dialogue, and our daughter was like, "Why do they keep talking like that?" And I go, "It's the, your internal voice. Don't you have one?" And she paused and goes, "Yeah." <laughs> I, I don't. That's funny because I don't think you realize it. It's the some, age that you start. Yeah, you don't realize until you start to realize. Yeah, she's mentioned it before, like, I have a voice in my head. And it's like, well, you're too young to diagnose schizophrenia, so I'm going to say it's just your internal dialogue. And I wasn't going to tell her yet, that voice will fucking lie to you, and a lot, especially you, genetically. I just, you should have just said, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> they even had an internal dialogue for the dog. He goes, I hope someone drops a hamburger. <laughs> That's not funny. That's so stupid. Anyways, okay, I'm stopping. So I went back to our third episode. Do you know what we covered in the third episode? Yes. What? Oh, I told you. I used Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Huh? I used stuff. Close. That was like the fifth episode. (laughs) We did Sarah Jo Pender. Do you remember that one? Yes, her and her boyfriend, they did some fucked up stuff. Yes. But she just was there and got... In trouble. She got good and that was good. Yeah. Me. She got railroaded hard. So I was like, I'm gonna look yeah. for an update and maybe I've already got the research together and that'll save me a little bit of time and but it will still be cohesive and good. Turns out I'm a better researcher. Or I just plagiarize better. Yeah, I plagiarize. Turnitin.com. Yeah, turnitin.com. No, I think when we first started, like I would cut stuff that didn't seem as important to the story, but now it's like the detail is like you want that extra detail. So our if our episodes were only thirty minutes long, then the length that I put in would be right. But our episodes are longer than that, especially when we jabber on. I think yeah, detail is important. Yeah, so I went back through. So it was Wikipedia, USA Today, Indie Star, and then I listened to the podcast Corpus Dialecti, which I Ooh. think means where's the body. I think you got it. No body, no crime. I think corpus dialecti. I have to know. Corpus dialecti means like you don't have the body, or you have to show me the body. Show me the body. (laughs) There's I. I don't remember the girl's name, but she puts on makeup while she does. She tells a murder story, but they're only like ten minutes long, so she just like kind of just tells the important parts, and then I kind of like it though. Okay, Okay, it just means concrete evidence of a crime, such as a corpse. So you're saying in a murder, if there's no body, it's hard to. Yeah, and nobody homicide. 
Um, so I listened to them, and I actually didn't agree with them a fair amount, but they're much more popular than us, so like they have advertisement and shit. But they they aired on the uh, on the side that Sarah Joe Pender is where she belongs. She put herself oh, there. Okay. Yep. And it's like, oh, well, didn't she try to escape? <laughs> yeah. Then I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah she probably yeah. should have done that. It, it's it's very complex, and I don't know if they both agreed with it because it's. Anyways, we'll start the story. Okay, that'll help. Born in 1979, Indiana native Sarah Pender was only five years old when her parents split and her mother moved to California, leaving Sarah and her older sister with their father. He had custody of them, and he did a great job, you know, trying to do the best as a single parent, and it it was hard. By the time Sarah turned seven, her mother was back in Indianapolis and back in her daughter's lives. They'd be with me, um, you know, every weekend, and they'd live with me in the summer. Despite her mother's return, Sarah struggled as she entered her teens. When I was in high school, um, I went through the phase of trying to feed the emptiness inside me with, with boys or drugs and, you know, drinking the parcel. And that didn't work out real well for me. However, by senior year, it looked as if Sarah's rebellious phase had passed. So, Sarah Jo Pender graduated from Lawrence Central High School in 1997. That's the north side, right? Yeah. Yes. North. And north and east. Yeah, Indianapolis, which is in the middle. I had a show choir competition once there. Did I say that in the other episode? I don't know, but I did. <laughs> I bet, okay, if it sounds similar, you know. So, sorry for anyone, but that we did the episode in 2018, the beginning of 2018. So, it's the beginning of 2020, so I feel like an update is okay. But then she later attended Purdue University, but dropped out, which I I identify with. And but she said that she was too immature and unable to manage living and attending classes on her own. Like the the level of actual intelligence it takes to be like, you know what? I'm not ready for this. I'm not going to waste my fucking money. I'm going to wait until I'm a little bit older and can manage the shit. That's what they should be teaching kids now, but they I don't. Agree. It's like I'm 18 and I need to go make all my life decisions and spend thirty thousand dollars while I'm doing it. A yeah, year. and I'm like. No, I'm like, I feel like if I went and did a four-year degree right now, I'd be a lot better at it. Mm-hmm. It's like, and you might pick something differently. God, I, I don't know it. if I, I hate I don't college. Know if, I could do it. if I didn't have to work, but yeah, all I did. If you're listening, you don't have to go to college to be a successful person. No, so don't, you don't. people tell you that. They tell you that in high school. They sure as fuck do. Okay, she later worked as a secretary at Carl E. Most and Sons. So she got a secretary job without a college degree. There you go. Better than me. Her boyfriend, Richard Hull, H-U-L-L, <laughs> uh, he worked as a bouncer at a bar. So he was a bouncer and a former high school football player. And I don't know if he went to Lawrence, uh, but he also had a criminal history that included six misdemeanors and two felony convictions for auto theft and for residential entry, which is a nice way of probably saying breaking and entering. It's just a residential entry. You know. It's, Maybe he just went to the wrong house. And walked in, unbeknownst. And the person said, you are unbeknownst to me. And he this goes, is oh, why my I bad. text people and say, here, Yep. make them come out. Come out and wave me in. <laughs> the couple met at a concert by the band. Do you remember? Um, Nine Inch Nails. Fish. Fish. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. In June of 2000, they started dating and two months later began sharing a house in the 900 block 
of Meckle Street. Meckle Street? It's closer to downtown. I think we, in the episode, I'm trusting ourselves. I, our podcast is the source for this episode, the <laughs> previous episode. So I'm, I'm trusting my research from the previous, that we said it was d- near the Lucas Oil downtown, the football stadium. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't, it was, was it the Hoosier Dome in 2000 or the RCA Dome? The RCA. Yeah, they, it got changed to the RCA Dome, I think, in the mid 90s. Okay. I found a, a job at a, a small construction office and uh, worked my way up from being a secretary to doing and reading blueprints. She was also offered to be gone to, to drafting school and um, to where she could go out and do the estimates on the jobs and things like that. Although only 20, Sarah appeared well on her way to success. I'm paying my bills. I don't have debt. I own my own car. You know, I'm doing great. Life is good. She soon had a new man in her life, too. Before I even saw his face or knew his name, I heard his laughter. So you have this joyous laughter coming from this bear of a man. And I I see a silhouette, and he's got a, a beer in one paw and a cigarette in the other. And his shirt's open, and he's this little round belly that jiggles when he laughs. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I want to meet that man. A mutual friend made the introduction, and that was all it took. We hit it off instantly. It's an instant attraction, I, I believe so. I mean, we had fun. I mean, we we're both like flamboyant, you know, outgoing personalities, both of us. A former high school football star from the nearby small town of Noblesville, Richard seemed larger than life. It looks like a big meathead, you know. I mean, even in kindergarten, I weighed 103 pounds. So I was like a little doughboy, you know. Within a month, Richard had moved in, and Sarah was planning their future together. We just never loved each other after that. We were together. That was it. I'm already picturing, like, our house in the suburbs. You know, I'm already putting together our American dream house. There were a few things standing in Sarah's way, though. Not only was her new boyfriend essentially unemployed, he also had a rap sheet. Richard kind of got involved up in, in the drug culture and kind of started steering down, steering down the wrong track. I had issues with alcohol and then later on came into drugs. I was my own worst enemy. As far as Sarah was concerned, Richard's past didn't matter, at least not at first. She said that he was very, very good to her, very caring and very attentive to Sarah. You know, and Sarah just kind of glowed, and and it it made me feel good. But I still, yeah, I still wasn't quite comfortable with the situation yet. You know, I didn't really know him and that, but she seemed content. Then, in early August, Richard asked if an old friend could crash at the apartment. He says, "Hey, I have a buddy. When his girlfriend wanted to come up, do you mind if they come here and stay with us for a couple of days?" His name was Andrew Cataldi. And like Sarah, he'd first met Richard at a concert. So their roommates, Andrew Cataldi, 24, and Trisha Nordman, 25, were both fugitives from a Nevada correctional facility where Trisha was serving time for forgery and Andrew for possession with intent to distribute which drug? Uh, marijuana. Methamphetamine. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> According to police, Richard and Andrew reportedly sold drugs from their place of Okay, from their residence, and Richard confirmed this. He's like, yep, that's what we did. Sold drugs from our house. So they were not good neighbors. 
Let me just say that. They were not <clears throat> like state. <laughs> they were bad neighbors and they weren't always there. So this dude, um, he's scary looking. He's very big, big bald head. What you would picture is someone who needed to be a bouncer at a bar. And so I would assume he's someone not need trifled with, would be my estimate on that. But according to neighbor Jaina Frederick, tension had grown for the three weeks between the couple as the two men had frequent arguments. Funny, like drugs makes you... Are you selling drugs? Drug makes me clear mind. But according to Sarah, she eventually did see signs of tension between Richard and their roommates. Towards the end of September, I came home and there was a hole in my wall. And I was like, why is there a hole in my wall? This is, well, that's where Drew's fist went through. According to Richard, the disagreement stemmed from their business. Or more precisely, it was due to their products, mostly meth and marijuana, which all four housemates frequently sampled. I'm not going to sit there and act like, you know, it was just him. Doing it. I mean, we all partied and did the drugs. Even Sarah, although she did try to keep things under control. She participated, but she was not one to overdo anything because of her job. Andrew didn't have as much restraint, according to Richard. There's a difference between abuse and use, and he wouldn't even stop. It was just constantly, daily. Soon the arguments between the business partners became daily, too. Drew's really not a bad, bad guy. He really wasn't, but drugs change people. They went from being like brothers and partners to really adversaries. As the tension in the house mounted, Sarah says she told Richard that things needed to change. I said, look, you know what? Please just stop selling drugs. Just get a real job, and we can go settle down. She was like, hey, you really need to chill out. He said, look, I, I can't do that, but I'll compromise. I'll get a part-time job. But the job, bouncing at a nearby nightclub, only escalated the drama between Andrew and Richard. He's working on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, which is the best nights for what they are normally doing. And by the middle of October, two months after moving into the house, the situation had finally become more than Sarah could take. She didn't like fighting. She didn't like disagreements. She didn't like anything like that. I was really concerned about that. So I, I said something to Richard. I said, you know, are you going to do something about that? At some point prior to the murders, Richard, who could not legally purchase a firearm due to his criminal record, yeah, that's that's a thing. But he still wanted a weapon, so he asked to buy one off of Jaina's boyfriend's son's cousin's brother. They were like, nah, I'm not okay with selling, selling my guns to felons. That's just not my jam. That baby. was good for them. Um, so he was unsuccessful, but was later able to convince Sarah to purchase a weapon for him. So she, I think, is the only person in this house that has a legitimate job and no prior convictions for anything. So if you're living in a house with people and you're the only good person in the house, it's probably not going to go well at some point. Like, the only one with a job, only one not getting arrested and shit. Mm. Mm -hmm. On the morning of October 24th, 2000, Richard drove Sarah to a local Walmart to purchase a 12-gauge shotgun. Yeah, we yep. go to Walmart. 12-gauge shotgun just hanging out at Walmart. Do they still sell guns at Walmarts? Um... Yeah. But some have, like, they don't sell ammunition anymore. That's, okay. Yeah, that's where it's starting to become difficult is they're going to start making it hard to buy ammo, which okay. that was Chris Rock. Chris, Chris Rock, Rock. said, he's like, just get rid of the yep. ammo? No, he said you need to make ammo just so expensive. Oh. 
Oh. So then you, when I save up the money to buy a bullet. <laughs> but, and then you got time to you think about right. it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so they bought the shotgun, a Coke, and some condoms. All the things you need for a wonderful evening. I don't think I'd question anyone buying mm-hmm. those things. No, but like, you do you, boo-boo. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything about this. The clerk who handled the sale of the weapon later reported seeing Richard select the ammunition and bring it to the counter where Sarah then paid for it. Yeah, he slid her his debit card and goes, here, you pay for this. Like, just the, okay. I, the just the act of her handing a piece of plastic to the cashier. It was like, I don't know how much paperwork you got to fill out for a gun. I don't even know. The couple then went for an outing with her parents and returned home around 11 p.m. Shortly after returning, Sarah left the building to take a walk. It is the end. It is late October in Indianapolis at 11 p.m. This would be a chilly walk. Best time of year. Yeah, I was like, but I was like, why? It just seems like an odd time to take a walk to me unless he said, go take a walk. And go, yes, sir. I will go take a walk. A brisk walk. I have my windbreaker. Swish, 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 swish. <laughs> According to Richard, while Sarah was away, an argument broke out between him and Andrew regarding money his sister owed. Andrew, who knew about the recently purchased shotgun, went into Richard's room to attempt to retrieve the weapon. He later told detectives that Andrew said he was going to kill my fucking family. It's like, but, like, where does, are they there right now? Because it's just you and me, you know. Where does the family live? It's like, they're in Colorado. As soon as I save enough money with my drugs, I'm going to get in a plane, take this 12-gauge shotgun after I save enough money to buy ammo, too, and shoot your fucking family in Colorado. <laughs> okay, I ad lib that part. Okay, this resulted in a physical struggle between the two men. The incident ended with Richard shooting Andrew Cataldi in the chest and shooting Trisha Nordman in the head and the chest. Yeah, so he's killing both these people that he lives with for an argument. And his stance is, oh, it was self-defense because he said he was going to kill my fucking family. Everybody always says self-defense. Yeah, it's like, where is your family at right now? Well, he didn't know where they lived. He didn't attack you, though. When Sarah returned, both victims were dead, and Richard had already placed one of their bodies in the back of a truck owned by his friend, Ronnie Heron. Ronnie sounds like the name of someone who would let you borrow their truck anytime. I agree. Mm -hmm. Anytime. Richard had borrowed the truck to remove items from the basement of the building as part of a plan he made with Andrew to create a methamphetamine lab in collaboration with a chemist from Las Vegas. But in our previous episode, I called it a methery. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. A methery. Fuck it. from Las Vegas. So it was Breaking Bad before Breaking Bad was a thing. Uh, the couple then drove a few blocks away, just a few blocks away, and placed the bodies in a dumpster where they were later found by a man named Steve Stoltz in the 800 block of South Meridian Street. Should have taken them to the pigs. <sighs> like, and I tried to find more information again on this couple besides the fact that they were escaped criminals because it's like, I'm sure there was more to them than just that. And, but I, again, I couldn't. Maybe in a book somewhere, but I did not have time to read it. We can't read, so... Mm-mm. Just kidding. Let's see. Sarah said she had no choice but to help. Doing anything else, she said, would have made her Richard's third victim. So, yeah, he still has a shotgun. And it's like... And I think he bought more than three bullets. Looks like you're helping me. Okay. On October 25th, Sarah went to work while Richard borrowed equipment from their neighbor to clean up the blood in the house. Can you imagine getting like hey, blood Ronnie, soaked? Um, can I also have some like bleach? Got the and... extra bleach, a carpet shampoo, maybe. <laughs> and if it comes back pinkish in nature, it's Kool Aid. <laughs> you know, there'd be somebody dumb enough though to go get a carpet cleaner from somebody yeah. and then still leave. Blood oh on. yeah, 
Oh yeah, return it. Water in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. the criminals. And, we didn't say they were smart. Mm-mm. Let's see. The next day, the couple went to Noblesville to return the truck to Ronnie. Richard then burned several bloodstained items at Ronnie's home. So Ronnie's the type of guy that would let you borrow a truck and burn evidence in his backyard. Oh. So, I mean, it's not a bad friend to have. <laughs> and once the police arrived, one thing quickly became apparent. They weren't looking at the original crime scene. There wasn't a lot of blood or coagulated blood that was in, inside the dumpster, which would be an indication to us that the dump site was different from the kill site. The police had no clue as to where the couple had been killed. In fact, they didn't even know their identities. These individuals, they didn't have any type of identification. Their extensive injuries meant the victims' faces were essentially unrecognizable too. But that didn't mean they were impossible to identify. Both victims had several distinctive tattoos. They released pictures of these tattoos. People may recognize, oh, I know that tattoo. And then you will start getting leads. By the next afternoon, the investigators had the victims' names. Neighbors recognized those tattoos as belonging to Andrew Cataldi and Tricia Norman. But when the police went to the house where Andrew Cataldi and Tricia Nordman had been staying, they soon had another mystery on their hands. The couple's housemates, 21-year-old Sarah Pender and 22-year-old Richard Hull, were also missing. Their roommates have been found dead. We definitely want to find them. On the same day, detectives who had now identified the victim searched Richard and Sarah's home. They found traces of blood and observed what attempted looked like an attempt to conceal the murders, like a bad job. My Richard, you're not good at this. The detectives uh, came out and uh, ended up going into the house. And when they searched the house that afternoon, it didn't take the investigators long to determine that it was also the scene of the crime. They awkwardly placed a couch in the middle of the room like we wouldn't have looked under the couch. But we moved the uh, couch and definitely saw what we believed to be evidence of of where uh, a large amount of blood from either victims was. Soaked under the carpet, was on the walls, was on the couch. Elsewhere in the room, police found more blood stains. A bed had been moved over a big spot spot of blood that was on the carpet, and that was away from the uh, couch. It was fairly obvious getting into the house, the way the uh, furniture was arranged in in this one room, what we believed to be the room where the uh, individuals were killed. Preliminary testing of the blood found at the scene revealed that it was Andrew Cataldi's blood on the floor by the bed. He wasn't sitting on the bed because the blood was on the floor away from the bed. And it was Trisha Nordman's blood that the police had found underneath the couch. Trisha Nordman was just sitting on the couch when she was obliterated. Meanwhile, Andrew's autopsy provided a few more chilling details about the killings. The pathologist told me that the angle of the shot was 30 degrees, meaning that Andrew Cataldi had to have been on his knees when he was shot. Richard was arrested in Noblesville on October 27th and confessed to both murders. So it's like, so you wasted a day cleaning because you were just going to admit to everything. Yeah, he didn't yeah. write mm-hmm. that out for very long. 
The following day, Sarah gave police a pair of bloodstained pants belonging to her boyfriend. DNA tests confirmed that the blood was that of Tricia and Andrew. No DNA evidence was found that linked Sarah to the murders for which both she and her boyfriend were charged. She stated later that after he committed these murders, I did not call the police, but instead stayed with him out of love, fear, and loyalty, and sheer stupidity. I was like, she's like 21 years old. How stupid are you at 21? Extra stupid. Yes. And you think you're an adult. And you're not. No, you're not. And you're old enough to drink now. It's just fun. So, you have a very large man saying, we're putting these bodies in this truck, and then you're helping me, and you're not going to tell anyone. You go, yep. He's got firearms, and you don't want to be on his bad side, would probably be my opinion in that. And based on his criminal record, the police suspected Richard Hull had been the shooter. My view was that he probably did pull the trigger. That's basically what Sarah said in the interrogation room, too. According to Sarah, Richard and Andrew had been arguing about money and drugs shortly before the shooting. Tired of their fighting, Sarah said she had stepped out. I walk around the neighborhood. I, I decide, okay, I'm going to go get some cigarettes and just, no, whatever. Sarah told police that by the time she had returned home, Richard was already loading up the bodies. When I asked my son, what happened? And he's like, shut up and get the truck. I'm shutting up and get the truck. Sarah said she had been too scared to ask questions. All I could see was like these black pupils. It must have been from all the adrenaline, but I mean, all I saw were these black eyes. And immediately, the one clear thought I had was, oh, I'm about to die. They start interrogating him, and he confesses. Although, according to his confession, Richard had shot Andrew and Tricia in self-defense. Richard Hall, in his statement, it indicated that he confronted Catoli because some of the things Catoli was saying and threatening Richard Hall's family, this is what Hall said, that they struggled over the shotgun. The detectives didn't buy it, especially since Tricia had been shot point blank in the face. How do you explain self-defense and when you look at the cold-blooded murder of Tricia Nordman? By the end of the day, the detectives had charged Richard Hull with the double murder of Andrew Cataldi and Tricia Nordman. If Sarah was simply an innocent bystander, what was she doing buying the murder weapon? She's a lot deeper in it than we thought. And then there was the fact that Sarah admitted she had gone to work the morning after the murders, spending the day at her desk while Richard was busy cleaning up the crime scene. Why wouldn't you tell somebody? Why wouldn't you get away from Richard all? That's some of the stuff that made me think, we need to take a closer look at this, uh, this woman. The investigators went to Sarah's office and questioned her co-workers. Strangely, they said she had seemed upbeat, even happy, the morning after the murders. They had killed their roommates. So why would you be happy about that? Did one of Sarah's co-workers have the answer? Sarah, two to three days before the murder, told a co-worker that she was just tired of Tricia Nordman and Andrew Cataldi living there. and She wanted to get, get them out, get rid of them. The investigators remain convinced that Sarah was far from the victim of circumstance she claimed to be. At the end of the interview, the investigators took Sarah into custody. By that afternoon, she had been booked into the Marion County Jail on a pair of first-degree murder charges. Never once in my mind did I ever think that I was going to be arrested for murder or that I even had anything to do with this. Chief thought that if she told them the truth that 
everything, you know, yes, that she'd be in trouble, but, you know, she wouldn't be in trouble for the murders. Sarah Pender's trial was held at Marion County Superior Court. So she got arrested and was charged with all the same stuff that he was charged with. In July of 2002, with James Dave as the defending attorney, Larry Sells as the prosecuting attorney, and the presiding judge, Jane Magnus Stinson. Neither Sarah nor Richard testified at the trial, which is smart, citing the fact that Sarah had brought the murder that Sarah had bought the murder weapon on the morning of the murders and that she later helped Richard in disposing of the bodies. Sells told the jury that she had planned the murders and had manipulated her boyfriend into committing the crime. So because she purchased the firearm and then helped dispose of the bodies it meant that she planned the murder. It's like or he told her, Buy this firearm or I'll punch you. Yeah. And so it's like she was in on it. Her sweet suggestions and tender kisses bent the will of her hulking boyfriend, Sells argued, persuading him to kill Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman. Richard pulled the trigger, Sells says, but Sarah pulled the strings. It's like, why? But, uh, okay, and you don't have to uh, prove motive in murder trials or anything. Yeah. You don't have to prove why, just that they did it. I mean, people usually want to know. I would want to know why. According to the Indianapolis Star journalist Vic Reichart, mm, doesn't matter. Sells likened her influence over Richard Hull to the control Charles Manson had over his followers who committed a string of murders in 1969. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. And they were all like, that seems like a gross overassumption. Yeah. The female Charles Manson tag has stuck to Sarah Pender ever since. Like, it's just, I don't know if prosecutors and stuff, they're putting on a show. And so. A jury would be like, yeah, that sounds interesting as fuck. And so <laughs> they would be more inclined to agree. And in Corpus Dialecti, that podcast, they compare it to Amanda Knox getting a tagline like Foxy Noxy, the mm-hmm. femme fatale that she manipulated her boyfriend. It was the exact same idea that she used her feminine wiles to seduce this big, large tree trunk man into committing these crimes. Why? We'll never know. And it's like, we'd like to know, though. Because that the answer might mean that maybe he just did it. I mean, it does get like eons more interesting when you add Charles Manson, which is from when, it, when you add the girl. Because other than that, could have just been like it's a drug shooting crime. over drugs. Over yeah. drugs. That's all that it, it's like. I shot you because you owed me drug money, or maybe you took all the drugs, or maybe you smoked the meth without me. I was like, so I shot your ass, and well, maybe it. I took it. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. I do too many drugs. They definitely labeled hers that. I was gonna say. Oh, I was going to say, Charles Manson was incarcerated in Indiana for a while. The boys' school, which is now Plainfield Correctional. No, it's near Plainfield Correctional. Daniel would know the answers to this. He's not listening. Do what? What? (laughs) Charles Manson was incarcerated at the boys' the same place as Mike Tyson, who held... Alexis, my friend. (laughs) As a baby, because her dad was incarcerated with Mike Tyson. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. What's the question? I don't remember now. Why? Well, yeah. Is the boys' school the is same? Is it the boys' school? Is it still? No, okay. I don't think the I don't think they use the boys' school anymore. Okay. I, I drove. We would drive by it a lot if you took the back oh, route yeah. to get to our house. Yeah, I don't think anything's in there anymore. It's or they use it. It's um, it's still the intake for all of Indiana. Yeah, the playing field. Yeah, it's the processing. Oh, I don't know if it does females. Male. Yeah. Okay, supporters of Sarah claim that this comparison is inappropriate because she did not plan, commit, or pressure her boyfriend into murdering Tracy Nordman or Andrew Cataldi. 
They claim that even if Sarah had been involved in planning the murders, the comparison would be grossly exaggerated. Charles Manson was a cult leader with a juvenile a juvenile offender record in a psychiatric history who led several members of his sect to commit several murders on several occasions over a period of several months. But Sarah is still like Charles Manson. She did that thing that one time. Yeah. She, after her and her boyfriend were together for two months, she manipulated him into killing drug dealers. To prove Sarah's guilt, Larry Sells relied chiefly on a letter allegedly she sent to Richard in May 2001 and on testimony of inmate Floyd Pennington. In the letter, Sarah took responsibility for the murder. I wish I could go back and change the events of that night, said the letter. Drew was so mean that night. I just snapped. I didn't mean to kill them. It must have been the acid. When you said you would try to take the blame, I knew then that you loved me deeply. At first, I thought you would tell, but you stuck to your promise. The letter ended with the postscript. Destroy this letter. (laughs) (laughs) Is the acid still? Is acid? Was that a thing at IU? I mean... I didn't. I don't. I never did drugs. So. <laughs> never well, I know, but drugs. still, I mean, <laughs> you're you, still around people doing them, though. Yeah, are you? yeah. Some so I mean, did. obviously, it was okay. So it wasn't obvious. I'm not saying like it's a wide. Like I knew people were heroin, and mm. obviously, every fucking college kid smokes weed and shrooms. That was a thing. Right. I don't know. I, didn't I, do uh, I don't. I still haven't done any drugs <laughs> since you last asked me thirty since, seconds um, ago. That's what's wrong with you. You never partake. I've never done shrooms or acid. <laughs> so I'm not sure. This letter basically said thank you. You know, implicating her in the crime where she took responsibility for the killings. Now the story is, and this letter is that I shot them in some drug-induced rage, and that he was this you know, great savior to go and clean everything up for me and take the rap. And I'm just, you know, so grateful. Sarah did write to Richard in prison, but she says the letter in question was not from her. The prosecutor was prepared to make it the cornerstone of his case. This letter came the closest to maybe the truth of anything we'd seen. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Larry Sells said that it ultimately didn't matter whether Sarah had actually shot Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman. Sarah Pender uh, was primarily responsible for what happened because she either pulled the trigger uh, or she manipulated Richard Hull and got him to. According to the prosecutor, Sarah wanted Andrew and Trisha out of the house and she convinced Richard to kill them and dispose of their bodies. Larry Sells just totally made it out to be like I was this awful, evil, manipulative person that made this man do it. Forensic document examiner Leanne Harmless, she is not harmless, testified that the letter had been written by Sarah Pender. Defense attorney James Nave contended the letter was a fake. So you have... An examiner saying, oh, yeah, that bitch wrote that letter. And so the jury's going to go, I agree with the examiner, smart person. Okay. Her attorney said that Sarah was no clever criminal mastermind and that the murder was not a clever planned criminal act. It was an act of the moment. He argued that Richard Hull had shot Andrew and Trisha because they were about to cut him out of a big drug. Like, what is it? Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the correct explanation. And so it's like they were shot over a drug deal. It's like, no. There was a vagina involved, and it belonged to that woman, and she used them and manipulated them. And they're like, nah, nah I, I feel like he so. just got shot over drug, over drugs. <laughs> Another piece of evidence presented to the jury was the testimony of fellow inmate Floyd, who had a pen pal relationship with Sarah for several months. 
He testified that she had admitted her responsibility in the double homicide to him during a meeting they had arranged on September 22nd, 2001 at Wishard Hospital, which is now Eskenazi. So, in our previous episode, we talk about this, the amount it would take for two inmates, they must have both been at Marion, you call it the Marion County Hilton several times. Yes. That they were both there, and both inmates had to convince guards that they were both in need of such medical care that they would take them to the hospital at the same time so that these two people could meet up and like chit chat at Wishard. Ah, my spleen! Ah, my spleen too! (laughs) So it's like, I can't believe this worked. And I guess they could prove it if it really happened. Like, you would be able to prove if both inmates were at the hospital at the same time. It's not impossible, but it seems unlikely. Yeah, it's like, I'm surprised it worked. Floyd Pennington was a habitual offender and violent felon awaiting sentencing on a robbery conviction. He also had a previous record for child molestation. Oh, he's a winner. A crime for which he received a whopping five years, which would probably be closer to a year and a half. In 1989, two days prior to meeting with Sarah at the hospital, he met with Detective Kenneth Martinez, saying he could arrange a meeting and have Sarah admit to him her responsibility for the murders. He had also been corresponding with Sarah, which totaled at the time 75 letters. This had evolved into a long distance relationship. Do not date child molesters. It's a hard line. It's a hard line. Not even a pen pal, a lover. Nope. It's bad. It's just bad. Nope. Um, after his meeting with Martinez, he wrote to Sarah to arrange the date on which she would fake being sick as to be sent to Wishard. And on September 22nd, he faked having a kidney problem and both met as planned at the hospital. So I was like, that's pretty complex, really. And I thought they read their letters. So like guards, like these two inmates are colluding, like, bah, fuck, whatever. I don't <laughs> get paid enough to deal with this. And it's like, okay, you probably don't. 